Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, gang, let's pray. We've got a great set of books to cover tonight, Philemon, Philippians, 1 Timothy, and Titus. Philemon, we're going to get to that, but first remember our chart. We have all these books of the Apostle Paul on the left-hand side. We called them what is somewhat arbitrary, I suppose. I mean, it is a descriptive, but it doesn't change much of the content. We have early books. We have major books just because they're longer. We have the prison epistles, which we are going to finish up, Lord willing, tonight. Ephesians, Colossians, we've dealt with Philemon and Philippians, which is a bad place to break because Colossians and Philemon go together. Matter of fact, when you go to buy a commentary, you might want to buy a single volume commentary on Colossians. And so often you'll see that Philemon is thrown in with it because of the connection, as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, And then Philippians, of course. And uh, we're trying to map these out chronologically. We think we have a pretty good handle on the chronology and even the dates specifically. And then, of course, we'll get into the pastoral epistles tonight. And I think if we can get to the end of tonight's outline, it'll be a good place to break because First Timothy and Titus are similar, uh, as I put down on the, on the chart here, I think written near the same time. And then Second Timothy, the last book from the Apostle Paul, which has a different tone and a different objective, uh, even though it's written to Timothy again in Ephesus and we'll get into that. We dealt with James, first of all, that came before 48, of course, 45, at least that's my guess, the earliest Pauline epistle, Galatians, the earliest general epistle, James, and then hopefully next time we're together, we'll get Hebrews and 1 Peter and 2 Peter. We'll see how far we can get Jude, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation by the last week, our general epistles, we call them. They're named after the author in this case, and then, of course, the book of Revelation, we have to put in a category by itself, an apocalyptic text, which means it's highly symbolic and is all about prophecy. At least most of it is about prophecy, chapters 6 through 22. Let's get into Philemon a little bit. First of all, the data, which I know is so interesting to you. One chapter, it is one of our one chapter books in the Bible, 25 verses, and in the Greek New Testament, it's 335 words. That does give us a sense of how long it is. The verses, of course, are somewhat arbitrary in that they were put so much later in church history, but of course, the words is what matters in terms of the length. The author, of course, is the uh, Apostle Paul. As it says in Philemon, verse number one, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So, of course, we have the Apostle Paul in prison, and it includes an associate in this case, Timothy, who is his most beloved, most trusted traveling companion, it seems, and protege, understudy, disciple. And we've seen lots of imprisonments. I started that sermon this weekend with illustrations about prisoners in the Bible. And remember, he was in prison in Caesarea, first of all, and then he was imprisoned in Philippi. But the only imprisonment that really matches where any of these prison epistles can fit is in the Roman imprisonment after he appeals from Caesarea to Caesar and he ends up going across the Mediterranean and the shipwreck and all of that in the book of Acts ends up under house arrest for at least two years in the book of Acts. And that's where all of these prison epistles come from as we've been studying. Shouldn't be a lot of debate there. Of course, as I said, any modern can debate them and they try hard to debate them for the purpose of discrediting them. I should be clear. Most of the time that is the motive as innocent as sometimes they claim to be. 
the date. This is the third or fourth of the prison epistles from Rome, 61 years after the had to be born before 4 BC. So AD 61, Anno Domini. That's Latin for the year of our Lord. The recipient, in this case, I say recipients plural because we are still dealing with multiple recipients. I know we say it's to Philemon, and it is primarily to Philemon, and that is what the subject is about how Philemon is going to deal with a particular situation. But if you look carefully at the beginning of this book, it is written to more than just Philemon. That's important to to note, I suppose. Philippians verses 1 and 2, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And look at this, even the church in your house. So I know we say it's a letter to individuals, and that's certainly the way I taught it to my kids when they were little. It's, it follows the pattern of the pastoral epistles and specific individuals, but that's not technically accurate in the sense that he opens up this exhortation to one person by addressing this with an open audience to the entire church that meets in his house. Now, you might remember, Philemon is, is Paul's convert. He says that clearly in, this, in the book itself. We just don't know if it's a first-hand convert or a second-hand convert. Uh, verse 19 says, and as the, the reference to that, to say nothing when he's talking about paying back what this runaway slave that we'll get into in a second owes him. He says, uh, you owe me, uh, you're owing me even your own self, which is not a statement of being your biological parent, but your spiritual parent. You owe me even your own self. Philemon, he is the uh, previous owner of a slave. His name is Onesimus. Onesimus is being appealed to uh, here in the book, verse 10. It says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. And of course, he loves that that phraseology, that symbolism of a spiritual child. He calls Titus his child or Timothy his true child in the faith. These pictures and phrases are always indicative of him leading these people to Christ. So not only has he led Philemon to Christ, but he's led Onesimus to Christ as Onesimus ran off to Rome, as often the runaway slaves did. It's a good big city to get lost in. And as he gets there, he connects with the Apostle Paul, who's under a lot of loose house arrest, as we talked about last time or a couple times back. Uh, He's not there in a dungeon as we uh, often envision him, at least not in this imprisonment. And so uh, he has a spiritual child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So I was in prison. I encountered this guy, won him to Christ. So he is my convert uh, and my disciple. You know what? Let's go back because I didn't make this clear, I suppose. The church that's in your house the church that's in your house, the reason Colossians and Philemon go together is because, as we learn in the book, he's from Colossae. So we're assuming this might even be helpful in kind of sketching out who we have in the book in terms of a host for the church. Of course, the early church didn't have property, didn't have public facilities, uh, not until the fourth century uh, when it was uh, legal. So you had the, the richest person or the person with the biggest house, at least, in your congregation usually hosted this. So you've got Philemon and, oh, and I put there, wife and son and the Colossians. His wife, and I put a question mark because we're not sure of that, but it seems that Philemon may be the rich guy who not only owns a big house, but he owns the slave, probably more than one. Aphia, he says, our sister, which we assume is his wife, and then Archippus, our fellow soldier, who's also a convert, we're assuming is his son. I didn't mention that, I'm sorry. And the church that meets in their house, that's in Colossae. The purpose of this book, very straightforward, to have Philemon receive this runaway slave back. Here's how it's put, verses 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. I even love that kind of, and it's not one of my favorite things in the book, although I note it here, that kind of open-ended thing about the sovereignty of God. When We should be very cautious 
about saying God did this because, and like even the way the Apostle Paul puts it. The point is, maybe he was parted for you for a while, and the reason he was a runaway slave and he's caused you pain and he probably ripped you off on the way out is so that ultimately he might come here, meet me, might get saved, and you can have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a slave, more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, he's beloved. I love him, and, and he's my brother. How much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? He's part of your household, and he was your slave, and now he's your brother in Christ. So the purpose is, I know you're really mad at a guy who ripped you off and ran to the big city. He ran into me, though. He's a convert now. I'm going to send him back, which says a lot about Paul trying to make right this situation. Now, he could have you know, said, hey, just I'm writing you a letter, and just no big deal. Forgive him, uh, but he wants this to be made right. And uh, he wants Philemon, of course, to be the bigger person in all this, to recognize that if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old's passed away and the new has come. And that is a great lesson in the book. Simplified outline, very, very simple. Again, it's one chapter. So we've got the first three verses here. Of course, that's what we're talking about with the numbers without any designation. Verses one through three, a simple intro. Uh, Paul spends some time being thankful for Philemon, this very rich guy in Colossae. He requests that Onesimus be received back in the bulk of the book, and then he concludes with a short conclusion, verses 22 through 25. So two parts to this, basically. Besides the intro, salutation, and the conclusion, personal matters, he's got, here is a statement of my love for you, Philemon. I appreciate you. We're on the same ground in terms of our relationship with Christ. We're brothers. Now I'm going to ask a very special request of you, and that is that you be magnanimous and forgiving and bring Onesimus back. And maybe even let him come back here and serve me, which he could have very much demanded. And we'll see that. We'll get into that. Favorite things. Let's get into the issue of the book. I love this about Paul. So many things about the Apostle Paul you've got to love. But I love the fact that uh, though he's a very humble man, and though you can see he's very deferential, he's willing to honestly call himself the worst of all sinners. He looks at his past and realizes a lot of things that don't make him proud as a person or certainly not earning salvation. Uh, He knows what it is to be able to look someone in the eye and say, you owe me. And and that is something he's going to do, not for his own benefit, but he's going to pull pull rank from time to time, and he's going to lean on someone with his authority for the sake of other people. And that is like the Apostle Paul. And look at how he puts it, verses 17 through 20. If you consider me your partner, after all that about how thankful I am for you, we're on the same footing spiritually. Listen, if you consider me your partner, you're the really rich guy in Colossae, I was the preacher, I am a preacher, I'm the apostle, then you would receive him as you'd receive me. I know you respect me. You need to now receive your runaway slave. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, which probably Paul already knew that he did, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So either this is, as we said before, with Emanuensis, remember the writing slave, literally, Emanuensis, uh, either this is he's breaking into the text to actually write this particular sentence, or it's a statement that he's written this whole letter himself. And remember, he says elsewhere, with such big letters, I'm assuming part of his ailment was his eyesight, speaking of glasses, eyesight problem. So I am, I'm assuming he's breaking in here, at least this is one way to understand this, and writing that statement to make it very clear. This is me, this is Paul, I'm signing this document, and you owe me just out of respect for me. Now, he says, not to mention, as I quoted before, you're owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you. I love that. The directness of asking for a favor. In this case, by while leaning on him with the authority he has as the person who led him to Christ. I want some benefit from you in the Lord for the purpose of something biblical and godly. Refresh my heart in Christ. This would make me happy. A lot of times, not just with God, but with people 
people we don't have because we don't ask. Am I right about that? Think about that. We need to sometimes be as straightforward as the Apostle Paul. And there are situations, I understand they're rare, where you would say, listen, you need to think carefully with me about the fact that if you have any kind of sense of of being ingratiated to me or any sense in which you are indebted to me, let me have a favor done on behalf of this other person or for the good of the church or the good of God. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Now, whenever in our day people start getting very specific about requests, people get very offended. And there are times even in this church, I'll stand up and I will ask specific things of you. I'll say, you know, we're going to do this with uh, maybe the revival summer camp and we're going to send kids to camp and we don't want to charge them anything or whatever. And I'll say, listen, this one time I want you to do this. There are times to utilize your authority as a parent, sometimes to utilize your authority as someone who is a discipler or a pastor or whatever it might be. And I love the way Paul is bold. He's not a, you know, cowering person saying, well, I would never ask for anything. And, you know, if you might think of it, maybe you would think about doing something for me. Uh, He's very direct and he asks very specifically. Uh, Of course, we don't want to create a church filled with people that are demanding things of everyone every time they think that someone owes them something. But I do think it is a great way for someone who's truly godly to recognize there's a time to ask very directly and even say, hey, I think you owe me this one. Go do it. Not for my sake, as you see in the context, but for the sake of the church and for Christ and for what is right, ultimately. I love this too, the optimistic persuasion. This is good for you teachers, you disciplers, even you evangelists. When you're out there sharing and trying to persuade, look at the way the Apostle Paul deals with Philemon. He says, I'm confident of your obedience. I mean, I just wonder when we try to guess how people are going to respond to things. Sometimes we're up and down and ebbing and flowing about how confident we are. But at this point, he's just going to say it. I'm I'm confident of your obedience. And I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I just think that kind of optimism is much better than the defensiveness that so many of us have. In, in a lot of, whether it's teaching or any kind of persuasion in any kind of setting when we're trying to see people do what they should do. It's going to be hard for Philemon to forgive Onesimus. I mean, it's going to cost him. He's basically saying, don't try and get it back. If you want to get it back, get it for me. And I'm sitting in a prison in Rome. I mean, it, clearly Paul is saying, forgive this debt. And he's saying it in a way that says, I, I'm confident you're going to do this. I love that kind of optimistic persuasion, I call it, that he has a, a hope that people are going to do the right thing. Uh, and I hope you see that in the people around you in this church. We want to be optimistically persuasive about exhorting people to follow Christ, whatever the situation might be. I can think back in my mind right now, things even I've said this week to my staff or to brothers in Christ and to say, hey, I, I'm confident you're going to do what needs to be done here in, in pleasing the Lord. So that's a great little nugget, I think, and a lesson we can learn. The book of Philemon, I think, is helpful to recognize as we see throughout the scripture in principle and in statement. But here we see it by illustration that obedience in your life is going to impact more than just you. You don't sin in a vacuum and you don't do what is righteous in a vacuum, right? I may know you may have the privacy of your own thoughts, but even that eventually gets out to a place where you're going to do things, say things, act in certain ways, or carry a certain attitude that's going to affect other people. I think of John 21 when Peter says, because he's demoralized about his denials of Christ, I'm going fishing. And we see in the text, four or five disciples go, I'll go with you. And he takes the apostles out on the Sea of Galilee when they should have been starting to build the church. That's the kind of problem that we've got to recognize that we never live unto ourselves, as Romans 14 says. Everything we're doing, we live not only before the Lord, but we're living in one way or another before other people. And your obedience impacts more than you. That's why, by the way, remember the opening. I'm going to address this, and you look at the content, and that's why you say this is a letter Paul writes to an individual. 
But you realize he's going to say to Aphia, Archippus, and the church in Colossae, you are going to all hear what I'm saying to this one person. In part because if his optimism is deep or shallow, whatever it is, he's going to say, I'm confident you're going to do the right thing. And when you do the right thing, what kind of effect is that going to have in the church? I mean, that's a really, really, it would almost seem manipulative if it weren't so sincere on Paul's part. If I stood someone up, named them right now, I said, you stand up right there. I've got something I want you to do for this ministry or for these people. And I'm confident you're going to do the right thing. And then everyone watches whether or not you do that. This isn't manipulation, but it is a reminder that everyone is watching. Everyone is connected. There is no one living in a vacuum or as Paul put it, living unto yourself. And it's helpful to see that even in how Paul addresses the letter. He could have addressed it privately. There's no need for him to say, I'm going to address this to the church that's in your house, but you're a model as the leader, the host. He may not be the preacher there. Maybe he was, but he certainly is the host and important for him to set a good example. So Paul is saying in a secondary sense and inferring at least that your obedience is going to impact more than you. And another good tool, I think, in our teaching, whenever we seek to influence others for Christ, there should be a goal of willing obedience. The reason I know Paul's not a manipulator is because he says things like this. He said, I'd prefer to do nothing without your consent. And he could, of course. He could say, Onesimus, you're fine. I'm going to write a letter and it's no problem. Or I'm not going to write a letter at all. You're a new creature in Christ. No need to go back and make that situation right. But he says, listen, I want you, Philemon, to do the right thing. And I'd prefer not to do it in a way that's without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but on your own accord. I want you to fully engage in doing this willingly, willing obedience. There's nothing better than that. Now, you can't always get that when you think about raising children. You make kids do the right thing. They may want to hit their sister in the face. You don't want them to do that, even if in their own heart, they're not to the place of saying, I'm fine not hitting her in, their, in her face. But the point is, I recognize the goal is to get people not only do the right thing, but to desire to do the right thing. And when you get their heart in a place where their actions or their words or their behavior, that's great. We don't want Christians running around our ministries, our classes, our small groups that are doing things begrudgingly. They're not doing it with a compulsion. Even the, the, the giving text, as it says, as they're collecting for that special project among the Corinthians. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves, in this case, an obedient person who's, who's obeying, not by compulsion, but to use this phrase, on their own accord, because they want to. And God always loves that. And certainly our goal in trying to persuade others is to get them to see that it's always better if you do it wholeheartedly. Now, that, does that mean that we don't do the right thing if we don't feel it? And the answer is no, of course, obviously. You can have a lot of rewards lost, perhaps, because your heart and your actions don't match. But you should always refrain from doing what you shouldn't do. But the point in this case is to seek that willing obedience. Number five, brotherhood over social status. I like what he says about him no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Now, Paul has addressed a lot in the Greco-Roman world about slavery. And there were many cities like Rome we talked about where you've got a large percentage of the people in some kind of indentured or some kind of enslavement, literally and legally and monetarily. You don't work for yourself. You're not feeding yourself. You're conscripted, at least in some way, to a covenant relationship with an owner. Now, that wasn't the kind of abusive thing if you try and compare slavery, because it's such an incendiary word, to American slavery and the abuses that took place in American history. I'm not saying it's a great thing, as this book would certainly recommend. It's always better if you're not a slave than if you are a slave. But the idea of enslavement here, he says, gets it levels the playing field in terms of our relationships because 
our Christianity changes everything. There's no male, female, bond, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian. We are all one in Christ. That doesn't mean that you stop working for your boss. As a matter of fact, as Paul says elsewhere, you should serve your boss even more heartily if they're a Christian than if they're not a Christian. That just because we're brothers, we don't create a flat line in society. And Paul is not out there campaigning against slavery throughout the New Testament because it's not the kind of slavery that you might be thinking of in terms of the kind of abusive slavery, although there was plenty of abuse in the ancient world. And he always says, you should be a kind of master if you do own slaves in the Greco-Roman world. That's always reasonable and kind and compassionate and all the things you would expect from an employer at your office. Uh, and if you're not, there's lots of roads that lead to Rome and guys like Onesimus proved you can get on one and get out of town and rip your master off. So nevertheless, the point is here, that doesn't matter when it comes to things like our Christianity. Christianity and our brotherhood in Christ outweighs everything. And the kind of, of caste system, the kind of a social gradation, that should not matter. I hope we can sit in our church services or in our Bible studies with someone that's making millions of dollars a year next to the person that's making, you know, $15,000 a year and say we're brothers in Christ. None of that matters when it comes to our relationships with each other. And James addresses the partiality problem. We need to be careful that we never see people in terms of their social status or their economic status. But ultimately, the primary thing is our relationship with Christ. Does that mean those things go away? If you go to this church, you may be the owner of a business. You may have employees that go to this church as well. It doesn't change the relationship in terms of how you have a structure of authority, but it certainly should change the way that you value first and foremost that they're brothers in Christ and not just employers or employees. Say a lot more about slavery, I suppose, but we've dealt with that, I think, earlier in this semester, and it, it just is good for you to separate those two things because you can go now to a Bible school or somewhere else and they're going, to have a, they're going to have a lot of problems looking at the Bible, seeing slavery as not being roundly condemned. It certainly is gradiated in terms of it's always a priority to get your freedom. Paul says you can get your freedom, get your freedom. But it doesn't matter, even in 1 Corinthians 7. You know, to whatever state you're called, it doesn't matter. What matters is your relationship with God and pursuing Christ. And if you can pursue Christ and make more money in a year, if it's not going to constrict your time to serve the Lord, then do it. If you can be free, then be free. Those are obvious things that are always advantageous for you as an individual. But the most important thing is that you're right with the living God and you connect with the people of God as brothers and sisters. The book of Philemon, there's a few of my favorite things, five of them from the book. Now we're not doing these in order of canonical order because now we're back to a group letter to a city of Philippi, the Philippians. Let's look at the book of Philippians. But we wanted to certainly put the two together in our timeline, Philemon and Colossians. Those go together and they were written as we noted, close to one another. But let's move on to Philippians, which we believe is the last prison epistle of the Apostle Paul. The data on that, four chapters, at least in the way we've broken it down for the last 800 years or so, or seven, 600 years, it's got 104 verses. And as has been the case, it's got 1,629 words in the Greek New Testament, the book of Philippians. 4, 104, and 1629. Did you get all that? The author is stated, but you have your Bibles out. Is written by the Apostle Paul. And does it not, since I'm in a different program here, it is also Timothy, our brother. Am I right? Right. Same as we've got going on in a lot of these, Timothy is there serving and being a messenger for the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment. This is the fourth out of four prison epistles from Rome. We're going to put this one at 61 AD, which we think is the end of Paul's imprisonment or right near the end of it. And you remember the book of Acts ends at that point. 
How does the book of Acts end? In Acts 28, we leave him there, coming and going with guests and, and visitors and people that are his friends and people that aren't his friends, people in the Praetorian Guard, people that are Roman soldiers. He's got a lot of, of lax freedoms, and yet he's under some kind of house arrest, and that's going to come to an end here in 61 or 62 AD. The recipients of this letter are the Christians in Philippi. Just to give you a sense as to where this is, to remind you, we'll put a map up here in a second. This is 11 miles from the Aegean Sea, so not right on the coast, but not far from the coast. It is a key Roman colony. Uh, It's a very important Roman colony in the sense that it's a military outpost, and it served an important role in terms of the defense and the uh, security of the Roman Empire. It had a rich and and deep Roman culture, uh, and even the excavations, as I think I put a couple pictures up here in a second, uh, the Roman architecture flourished during the Roman period here in in, uh, Philippi. It was founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. If you might remember that, the maps, we had a first journey, a second journey, a third journey, and a fourth journey. Sometimes we call it as his trip to Rome. Really, they call it the voyage to Rome. And then, as we'll see tonight a little bit later, another one, which sometimes is called the fourth journey. But if you use fourth journey for the journey to Rome, then it's a fifth journey. But enough confusion with that. We'll get that cleared up later. The church was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. He visited her five years later on his third missionary journey. And you remember the arrows of our maps, if you think back to it right here. We had him coming in two different routes through what is now modern-day Turkey, We call it Asia Minor through Phrygia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pamphylia. And then you also see him coming back on this journey the same way. And we see him again visiting this same city on the second and third missionary journey. Philippi, this is where Lydia is converted. And the slave girl is following around and and it ends up getting him thrown in jail. He gets out of jail with the earthquake and the conversion of the Philippian jailer and all those stories that we learned about as we were going through the book of Acts, which of course you know. But all that took place way up here at the top of the Aegean Sea in Philippi, the ancient city of Philippi. If you go there today, you can see ruins, which if you went with us on our journey of Paul's trip, we went there. And as I recall, it was raining that day that we were there. This is the Roman era for, forum. It's called the Agora. Agora, by the way, you think about we've got Agora Hills here in uh, California. Agora, it, it really is a monetary unit of the, uh, it's a Hebrew alliterated word of a coin, the Agora. And it, it represented the marketplace. So when they talk about a Roman agora, we're talking about the place where they sold goods and they had their shops and their stores. Sometimes we talk about the Roman Cardo, the center of town, Cardia, the heart. Anyway, and then if you see here, you see some architecture that looks older. If you know anything about ancient architecture here, that really goes back to the 5th century and the uh, a basilica that was built there in Philippi. But if you've been to Philippi, and I know I remember this because we ducked in here during the rain, the, the trip that, that we took our uh, compass tour there, and I think this is the place we went to see an example of a Philippian jail. At least that's what the arche- archaeologists will say. This is a the kind of dungeon-type place that they would put people in a jail. When you think about Barnabas and Paul in the Philippian jail and the Philippian jailer and how everything that they were appended to uh, came, fell apart because of the earthquake, probably something 
damp and dank and dark and was something more like this. And of course, Paul and Barnabas had been uh, whipped and, and beaten and they were in a lot of pain in a place like this. And you can visit this place even today, which we're not saying is the exact jail that Paul was in, but it certainly dates back to a period that was similar to what you would see in the ancient world, some perhaps bigger. But don't picture what you picture on the Pirates of the Caribbean as you're going through it. Although it's not far from that, I suppose. Okay, the purpose of the book of Philippians, and I think it's, there's lots of reasons for it, actually. It's a reassurance, number one, regarding Paul's circumstances. He speaks a lot about his joy. You think of Philippians, if you've been through Sunday school class, you know, growing up or or whatever, as an adult, they probably said, think of joy when you think of the book of Philippians. Well, that's an odd thing to think of because Paul is writing from jail, even though it's not the dank jail of Philippi that he was in when he was in Philippi. He's writing back to Philippi about a lot of things in particular at the beginning of the book, reassuring them that he's okay, that all of this has turned out for the advancement of the gospel. I am in this Roman house arrest, but people are getting saved, even people in Caesar's household. So this is a good thing. And he speaks very highly about God's sovereignty in that first chapter, making it very clear that uh, this is no mistake. It can be painful. It's not right. It's not my plan. I would never choose it. But I'm here. I trust God. God is going to work this out. I understand he's got a good plan. I believe the verse that the Spirit guided him to write in Romans 8. We call it Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. We know that to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He proves that here by putting his own reputation or his own experience, rather, on the table as an exhibit saying, look, I'm going to look for what God is going to do even in this painful situation of deprivation. I'd much rather be preaching here and there and near and far, but instead I'm confined, but we trust God and his good work that's taking place through these bad circumstances, bad in terms of unpleasant and unforeseen. Number two, he gives thanks for the financial gift that they brought him. And he does it in such a interesting way. I can't remember if I listed that. We'll get to that in a second. But nevertheless, this letter in part, he's sending the messenger to say, thank you for supporting me. When others didn't, you guys did. And it was awesome. And thank you. Doesn't use the word awesome, but he thanks them. Number three, a call for unity. There is factionalism going on in the church as there is a temptation in every church. And he's going to come down hard and he's going to name names in this book. And he's going to make clear that you guys need to get over your factional spirit and you need to get get along and he calls people out fourthly it's a warning against false teachers and there's a lot going on here against the backdrop of heresy sweeping throughout asia minor that he's trying to get people back to the reality of who christ is what the gospel is he gives a great testimonial about his own life in chapter three which really is a uh, it's a it's a retort it's a response to the judaizers that are wanting them to live up to the ceremonial laws and circumcision and all the rest he calls them names he calls them dogs in this book uh, very strong language uh, he's very clear as he presents these truths even in chapter two about who christ is these concepts of a false thinking about christ he's there going to try to shore them up and safeguard them against false doctrine Those are four primary purposes for the book that I think are pretty easily distinguishable as you study the book and read through it. Simplified outline, do the best I can with these really, really short outlines, but Thanksgiving here, and I couldn't break it down evenly, so I got to split this up with verses so there's more numbers to write down, but the Thanksgiving in the first 11 verses, which is great, he's thankful for them extended sentence about how thankful he is the update report on his on his circumstances everything's fine i trust god's sovereignty i know he's in charge i don't like it it's painful but it's god's going to work this out 
and he's already working out. He's looking for the good in all of this. And then, of course, a strong call throughout the rest of that chapter in the beginning of chapter 2, as we'll see in a minute, uh, or a call for them to live righteously in some very practical ways as well, based on some great doctrine. And then he gives a lot of updates uh, in the rest of that chapter, verses 19 through 30, about the situation as it's going to play out, and he expects it to, and what's going on. And then he gives a lot about the false doctrine that's going on in the church. If I think about his testimony in chapter 3, perhaps I meant 3-1 through 4-1. That could be. Matter of fact, that, that's probably it. Number six, unity and joy, the end of the book. He talks a lot about their gift there. He's thankful for the gift. He's thankful for the credit that they're going to get for the gift. Oh, no, he sets them up there. That's the passage, uh, be anxious for nothing. Keep your mind on everything that is right and good and lovely and pure. And then he gives thanks for the gift, number seven, and God's provision. That's the end of the chapter and the end of the book. That's a long outline for such a little book, but it's a hard one to break down simply. Thanksgiving update report, live righteously, more updates. They're miscellaneous, avoid false doctrine, unity and joy in the church. That's when he addresses the factionalism in the church, calls out the gals, and then he ends with a thank you for their gift, and he speaks of God's provision. And that's where we get that verse about all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is not a a verse for Friday night high school football games. It's about uh, the fact that even if he hadn't gotten the gift, just like in prison, God is going to take care of him and supply. God will get his will done through him, regardless of what kind of money he might have or what kind of freedom he might have. My favorite things, let's talk about this. I've already kind of hinted to this, but I love his confidence in things for good. He believes it. Listen to the way he puts this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I am confident that this is God's will. And if you're not there yet in your Christian life because you think God is not truly the architect of what goes on, that every molecule in the universe ultimately is obedient to him, and that he uses both calamity and he uses blessing for his good, then we need to go back to scripture and understand all this. We need to see that God is a God who's working his will out. He works everything after the counsel of his own will, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 1. Confident in things for good. I hope you're there in your life. You need to get there. And I think that changes everything about how frustrated you are as a person, how angry you are as a person. It's good to be indignant. I get that. I can be indignant. As a matter of fact, I'm supposed to be angry. It's a command, but not sin. And the kind of sin that I think so often comes out of people's lives who don't believe in the sovereignty of God in their everyday lives is a lot of frustration, personal angst, a lot of complaining about things. And the Apostle Paul had every right to complain. This could have been the letter known as the complaining letter, but it's not. It's known as the letter about Paul's joy and his call to get everybody to rejoice in God's will. Confident in the things that we say are for good. His perspective on death is really helpful in this passage. I love this, the big picture. Of course, death is a terrible thing and we hate it and and we wish it weren't a reality, but it is a reality. But we know this, as he says in this passage, even if you were to die in that Roman prison, Long before he should, he said, it's my eager expectation and hope, when I say should, that people would expect at least. He says that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, there's the real key in all of our grappling with the issue of life and death. Now, as always, Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, either you believe that or you don't. I know a lot of people go to church and they sing a lot of Christian songs and they read their Bible from time to time, but they do not believe that. Now, I get the pain of it all. He talked about Epaphroditus and he said, I have a great sorrow, man. I have sorrow upon sorrow if he weren't here. But it wasn't that he couldn't stand back and recognize uh, that this life is not what it's about. And we got to get our minds beyond the threshold of this life, beyond the horizon of the temporal life, because the things you can see are 
They're fleeting. They're temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And when it comes to our relationship with Christ and the coming kingdom, that is eternal. And the perspective on death, I think, is very helpful here. As Paul says, I'm, my, my goal is courage and confidence. Courage and I'm confident. Christ is going to be honored in my life or in my death. That'd be a good thing for us, as Jonathan Edwards often said in his resolutions as a teenager when he wrote those. You just got to have this perspective. My life is God's. I'll live it for him. And whether in life or in death, I'm going to seek to glorify the Lord and I will trust his will. Number three, application and great theology. Application and great theology. If you've read my book, and I doubt many of you have, maybe some of you have on preaching, that was my first published work, at least outside in a publisher. It was a book trying to help the preaching world to focus on the fact that great theology and sound doctrine should never be devoid of biblical application. And I love this because the highest passage in the Pauline epistles regarding the deity of Christ, it's the thing that we run to to try to figure out what the incarnation is all about, really isn't a passage about Christology. Oh, it is. And we learn a lot about Christology. Uh, But look at how it starts here in verse five. It really starts in verse one as he talks about all the things that would be great if your church could start to serve each other and you could start to put other people's needs first and you stop being so selfish and coming to church like you're going to the mall to pick out stuff for you. You need to come with a whole different perspective. Your church and your church experience should be, as it says, like Christ when he came to earth. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And on we went, and were the most high-worded and lofty statements about the incarnation, the deity of Christ, and Christology. But all of this, look at the first four verses that I didn't put on here. It's all about them doing what they're supposed to do in the church, having the mindset of preferring one another, having fellowship the way they ought to have it, having a genuine, devoted, sacrificial love for one another. And he says, really, this the foundation of it is you thinking rightly about Christ's incarnation. But it all flows from that. Application and great theology. You can say in a passage like this, the great theology is there to push Paul's pastoral application. Now, of course, that's not how it really works in the sense that all that really matters is the doctrine, but the doctrine in Scripture is always the catalyst for us being who God would ask us and call us to be. I just think, stop with all this thinking that the doctrinal stuff that you want to do and sitting there, if you have an erudition about you and you want to sit with a book and a a jacket with elbow pads on it and read theology, that it's about you stuffing your mind full of rich theology. I love that. Some of you love that. That's great. But if it doesn't drive us to application, something's missing. The Word of God demands a response. It's not just about playing with our brain and having entertaining thoughts about God and these mind-blowing thoughts about the greatness of God. It's driving us to application. One of the greatest books I read as an early Christian, I was a brand new Christian, read Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. We recommend it all the time. A lot of guys do. We're not unique in that. This church loves that book. I know Tozer has certain tendencies that are interesting and on the edge about certain things, but when it comes to his rich understanding of God, even in the end of every chapter, these prayers... Look at the prayers in that book of every end of every chapter, all of these things that should drive us, not just to worship, but to a different kind of lifestyle. Good, rich, deep theology about Christ, about the Spirit, about the Father, all should be things that drive us to do what God would have us do. We don't earn our salvation clearly. We've talked about the difference between works and their and grace and the role of good works as an expression of grace. But the bottom line is, I love a passage like this because if you said, what's one of the best Christological passages in the text, you look at it in context, you're going to say, Paul's concerned about the church functioning as it ought to function and people living the way they ought to live. 
Favorite things. Number four, clarity about our resumes. I talked about chapter three real quick as I set up the book saying here is a section where Paul brings his credentials, which really, as he wants, as he says, if, if I were to compare it to anyone else's, man, I, I think I would outshine you in terms of the fastidious nature of keeping the rules, in terms of the Pharisees and their expression of what the rules were in the Old Testament. I was doing everything, not only that the Bible said that I thought I could do, at least, of course, in the externals of my life, but even what the Pharisees expected of me and their man-made traditions, I was doing all that. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Whatever I gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That simple concept right there of saying it's an exchange of my resume. I preached that this weekend. The penal substitutionary atonement of Christ is not just about my sin on his cross. It's about his righteousness on my account. And that means I've got to say the only thing that makes me right before the living God is not what I've done, not what I'm doing, not the fruit that I'm bearing. But it's the fact that his resume takes the place of mine. And that's why those G. James Kennedy's questions, remember the evangelism explosion program where you'd go out, knock on people's doors, or you'd visit people that visited your church, and you would ask them, why should God let you into his heaven, right? You'd ask them if they're going to heaven when they die. They say yes. Most people do, right? They think they're going to heaven. Why, right? Why should God let you into his heaven? What's the, what is your basis for that? And, and that's a great diagnostic kind of question as to whether or not we understand the exchange of the resume that I preached about this last weekend or whether I think that Christ is just going to kind of help me. He's going to be a little floaties on my arm as I swim to heaven. That, that's a, there's an illustration that just came to my, to my mind. Number five, I said this to you when he talks about the factionalism of the church. He has no problem calling out individuals. Now, of course, he is the Apostle Paul. I'll give him a lot more deference. I'll give deference to him to think clearly about this, perhaps more clearly than you or I, but he's not afraid to, to say, Eodia and Syntyche, you guys need to get it together. Agree in the Lord. And I ask you also, true companion, help these women, which may have been the guy bringing this letter, or it may have been actually the name, and they translated in the ESV. He's saying, listen, these you've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Again, the foundation of us, like we saw with Philemon and Onesimus, is that we are Christians. Our names are written in the book of life. We should be able to get along. We should be able to get our differences and lay them aside. Let's find unity around sound doctrine, and then let's make sure that we are not factional. And factionalism usually is about pride. It's about self-promotion. And he's willing to see two gals that need to be called out, the Yodia and Syntyche, and say, you guys are messing up and you need to get it right. There's a time for that. Of course, Paul has authority in that church that you and I perhaps don't feel we would have in any context that's similar. But I know that in your life, you do have a, a circle somewhere where I think it's time to stick your finger in the chest of someone and simply and lovingly and forthrightly say, this has got to stop. You just got to stop doing this. And I know sometimes I get the elbow. I shouldn't go any further with explaining how that works, but I know people think I go too far sometimes. And as I've often said, and I, I can feel that, I can wince at my own preaching sometimes, I will eventually get through the discomfort of looking at what I've said to people in counseling or in a small group or in a sermon and say, I wonder if I'm not going to get to heaven and say I should have been much more forthright. I should have been much clearer. I should have been much more specific about calling out particular sins or particular people in their sins. And this can be taken too far and people that have no concern for people and they, they don't care about anybody's reception of the truth. They just like hearing themselves call people out. But that's not Paul. But I do love the fact that he's gutsy. He's gutsy in Philemon to say, you owe me one. And he's gutsy in Philippians to say, you and you, you're the problem and you need to fix this. There's a time for that. And you let the chips fall. Do you know what happened to Yodi and Syntyche? Do you know what happened to them after this happened? Do you? 
Neither do I. I don't know. <laughs> they might have they might have left the church. I don't know. And so you let the chips fall in that regard. I don't know what happened. Number six. He's a gracious recipient of kindness. He's a gracious recipient of kindness. There's a good life lesson for you. Could you learn to be a gracious recipient of kindness? I believe everything the Apostle Paul said about the fact that he could have done fine without this financial gift. He could have been fine sacrificing for Christ with less. But he got this gift from them and he was gracious in how he received it. Philippians chapter 4 verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And later he says, it was kind of you to share in my troubles. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, I'm just saying some of us can't receive gifts well, and I don't like that. Matter of fact, you bother me when you can't receive kindness well. I often say to people that are giving me a hard time for me being kind to them, I'll stop them and say, would you not do this for me if the tables were turned? I mean, stop with this, this, I won't receive this from you. Paul is ready to say, I, I'm, I'm so happy. Now he's going to say a lot about his own sufficiency in Christ. I can do all things through Christ, but he's willing to say, it is kind of you. Thank you. You sent help for me. You were great. That was great. Can you learn to take, when someone reaches for the check at, at the table after church and wants to pay for your lunch, can you receive that graciously and kindly? Are you too busy keeping score? to where you can't receive those things. Now, I think you should object at least once. But I, th- I remember bringing my kids up and I say, listen, you object at least once. You don't insist, but you say, I would like to pay. But you know what? Because I want to be a gracious recipient of kindness. I want to, as he says here, make sure I don't steal the credit that God is going to give that person for being kind. You see, when someone pays for my meal at a restaurant, I know God is going to reward people for that. And I don't want to take that away from them by being a jerk about receiving kindness. And I hate to put it that way, but so often we, we're not good at this. And we need to be better at it. And even the Apostle Paul, he sees this as a good thing to be the recipient of the gifts of others, whether it's kindness, going out of the way for them. If I do something for someone and it's inconvenient and difficult or it's hard, I hope I could say to them, if they try to straight arm me, wouldn't you do the same for me? I would hope so. That's what, it's, that's what it's like to be the body of Christ. I've said this so many times. I would gladly lend you my car because I would hope that if I needed a car, you would gladly lend me your car. Is that right? I hope I have hundreds of cars available to me. And, and, and I, I would gladly receive the kindness, especially if you own a Porsche. I would gladly receive the kindness of your vehicle. I'm just kidding. But I'm just saying, because I would gladly give you mine. That, see, I think that's where we miss it. And I think you're too revealing sometimes when you protest about people's kindness. Because so often I think I, I hit the nail on the head because I don't think you perhaps would be as open-handed. And that's a problem. God loves the generous. Just had that conversation with one of my kids today. Just keep being generous. Keep giving. Give of yourself. Give of your stuff. And God will take care of you. In part because I know I'm a part of the body of Christ that's going to take care of me. I know that. And I'm willing to sacrifice to take care of others. And you are too, I hope. When you're on the receiving end, be a gracious recipient of kindness. Let's talk about 1 Timothy. We're turning the page. We may have time to finish this outline tonight. That would be awesome. 1 Timothy. Here's some stats for you because you love the stats. Six chapters, 113 verses, and 1,591 words in the Greek New Testament. 6, 113, 1,591. 6, 113, 1,591. Not a short book. Compare it to what we've been through, right? It's, it's a pretty, pretty lengthy book for the shorter letters of the Apostle Paul. The author, it's stated in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul, the apostle Paul, I've often said some of these books are undisputed. I can tell you, 1 Timothy is disputed. Marcion didn't even add it in his canon, but he didn't add a lot of books in his canon early on. I mean, in other words, he didn't think it was inspired. And people have taken shots at 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, in part because they see the structure of the church. Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. One is the structure of the church. They think, I don't think this is what God would want. Well, I think it's exactly what God wants. Paul gets to the end of his ministry here, and he's writing letters about the structure of the church, because guess what? Christ wasn't going to come back for 2,000 years. He's setting up the structure of the church. They don't like some of the words used. They think that because of the words that are used in the book for leadership, uh, episkopos and presbyteros, the word for overseer or bishop or foreman, and the word presbyteros, elder, they think, well, we're starting to create different structures here. Well, that's a, that's a misnomer. Episcopos, we think we're building an Episcopal structure. Episcopos is a synonym of presbyteros in the, in the pastoral epistles. This is not a complicated church structure. This does not create the Catholic church or the Episcopal church. It doesn't even create the Presbyterian church in my view. It's very simple. The structure is simple. So they object on the wrong reasons there. They object because they can't fit in some of the geographic locations with Paul's journeys in the book of Acts. Sometimes people say, I Paul couldn't write this. This was somebody in the second or third century writing in the name of Paul. You know what? That's because, as we'll see in just a second, there's a lot going on after Acts is over. And there's plenty of hints even outside of the pastoral epistles about that. So whatever. I don't want to spend a long defense on the Pauline authorial writing of this book, but there's a couple things because this is one of the books that is disputed. Not in my mind and not in most people's minds, but it, it, gets, it becomes the target of non-Pauline authorship more than the others, First and Second Timothy and Titus. The date. Well, I can say this, and let's start with this. This will be a little longer. Hopefully I gave you some room for this, yes. I want to talk about, let's set this, the framework for this. Paul after the book of Acts. Book of Acts ends around 62, AD 62. And I said this earlier that we were talking about, he, Luke abruptly ends the writing of, of the book of Acts. And he's still there in house arrest, seeing people. People are coming and going. We just read Philippians as he writes from Rome. He's winning people in the imperial guard, the praetorian guard, the, the Roman elite. He's leading them, at least the soldiers, to Christ. He's got freedom there. Well, that's all we hear. It ends without an ending. There's more that happens after the book of Acts. I know this because of Acts 27, 24. Acts 27, 24 was the promise of God that you will go and appear before Caesar. You will go before the emperor. So if it ended with him dying in prison before he ever got his hearing before the emperor, then God and his prophecy and what he said would happen, it wouldn't have happened. So I know at least his case is heard or it's dismissed. Some people would say only because I add that because if you watch where we're going, he found his way back to Rome again and was heard by the emperor who was Nero at that particular time. At this whole time, Nero had been in charge since the 50s, and he became the emperor at, I think, 17. He was a teenager, and he was crazy. You can say that now that he's gone, but uh, <laughs> couldn't say that when he was alive. Probably one of the reasons he got, well, whatever. We'll get into the future of Paul here in a second. Here is our understanding. We don't need the pastoral epistles for this. We believe that Paul was released. We believe that because of the very firm, confident optimism he has in Philemon 22. Philemon verse 20, I'm coming to you. And in Philippians 1, verse 19 and following that section about, I'm confident, give me courage, Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, I don't know what to choose, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But you know what? He ends up saying after all of that, saying, I'm ready to die here. He ends up saying, but I, I think I'm going to be released. So he's got a sense that he's going to be released. He could be, dis the case might be dismissed. 
Some would say that there was a two-year incarceration, and, and if your case wasn't heard, and it's kind of like a, a lot of things. If, you do, if the witnesses don't show up and you don't have anybody to charge you, they just let you go after two years. So that could be what happened. Or it was heard and dismissed on the lack of evidence. Nevertheless, it was the early church, and they spoke clearly about Paul leaving after this Roman imprisonment and going. Here's how Eusebius says it. Not only did he go east and evangelize in the east, he went out west. I guess I'll do that opposite for you. East, he went out west. It says, and Eusebius says, to the extreme, as far as you could go west. Remember when Paul wrote to the Romans, he says, I want to get to Spain. I want to go beyond all the way to Spain, the edge of the ancient world. He said, Eusebius says, and he got there. He went there. He went to the, he went to the, as far west as you could get in the ancient world. So we believe that Paul is released, which then starts to make sense of the geography that we read about in the pastoral epistles. We believe that Paul went back to Colossae because he says he's going to in Philemon 22. And we believe that he did. Paul, we believe, we don't know where I put a question mark behind this because we don't know the sequence of this, but at some point he gets to Crete. Now again, we're assuming we should. I shouldn't even probably brought up the doubt about the Pauline authorship. Paul wrote the book of of 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy. Somehow he's got a connection in Crete. He's going to leave Titus there. And so we know he's going to get there. And he gets back to Ephesus too, according to 1 Timothy. So the idea of Paul traveling to Crete, he doesn't go to Crete in the first missionary journey, doesn't go on the second missionary journey, he doesn't go on the third missionary journey. He is got to get to Crete at some point to make sense of these letters. He goes to Macedonia, verse, chapter 1, verse 3 speaks in this term, and we believe that he writes from Macedonia, as he says there in 1 Timothy, this book. So he's got to get out of prison in Rome, and he's got to get back to Macedonia. We believe he's going to go to Spain. He said he's going to go to Spain. So we think he gets out of Roman prison, he goes east, and then he ends up going west, and he gets all the way uh, to Spain, which he said very confidently he would. Now, I'm not saying just because he said confidently he was going to do it that he was going to actually do it. Because at the end of First Corinthians 16, he says some things about plans he made. And in Second Corinthians chapter 1, he says those plans had changed. So it's not a certainty. But extra biblical writers, early church fathers as we call them, the early pastors of the church, talk about Paul's influence in Spain and beyond. We don't think he had a lot of success there because the history in Spain, in terms of the church, we can't see Paul's big influence there, at least not in the the first century. We don't see the message of the gospel catching on. Nevertheless, we believe he got there. Early church father said he got there. He said he was going to get there in Romans 15, and we believe he did. We believe he goes back to Ephesus, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But in that time period, as he goes to Ephesus, and I put a question mark next to this, but this is perhaps when he wrote the book of, of Titus. He could have written them from the same place. Could have been here, could have been four, could have been seven in my list. But nevertheless, he's got to get to Crete, he's got to get to Ephesus, and we believe he's going to write these letters from there. Perhaps Macedonia is where he writes Timothy. It seems pretty clear from chapter 1, verse 3. Number eight, we know that Paul spends time in Macedonia in a place called Nicopolis. Nicopolis is named, and it's, it's on the, and i got to do this backwards for you, it's on the western coast of Greece. So actually, if you just go up from Crete, I'm like, I think I got a map coming up, so there'll be a map. It's a place that we know he didn't go in his earlier missionary journeys in the book of Acts. So this is beyond Acts. This is after Acts. He has to get to Nicopolis, and he speaks of it. And so this is a geographic location. Again, we can't trace through the book of Acts, which doesn't mean, and the specificity of it doesn't mean, well, this is, must not be biblical. Matter of fact, if you're going to try to p- pass this off as a con that this is written by Paul, you're not going to put all this in it because it's just going to confuse us, which we are confused. We have to piece it together. So... It's not a forgery, is what I'm trying to say. Paul then either goes to Rome or is arrested and brought to Rome. And some scholars think he must have gone to Rome because we don't think 
He was enough of a threat, they said. At least depends on the city, and we never know because there's a lot of things we read in the book of Acts. He made a real mess, and people got really angry with him. But perhaps he was incarcerated and brought to Rome. Either that or he travels to Rome. Either way, we believe, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, that he was imprisoned in Rome a second time. And the reason we think that is not only because it all fits with all the geographic locations that are named between the book of Acts and all that we have in the rest of Paul's epistles, but because it's a completely different description. He talks about his imprisonment completely different than you read in Acts 28, where it's he's free to write, he's free to receive guests, everything seems fine. He's under house arrest. It's a different kind of imprisonment this time. And he's not like he is when he writes the prison epistle to the, to the Philippians, which is, I'm going to get out. I'm pretty confident I'm going to get out. He says it to Philemon, I'm coming. I, I'm going to be there. I'll be there by winter. These ideas are, are absent by the time you get to 2 Timothy. Now he's saying it's done. I'm a drink offering, being poured out. The end is near. I finished the race. You know, I, I fought the good fight. It's, there's a kind of constriction about the imprisonment here that's described. So it's not house arrest. The Mamertine prison, if you've ever been to Rome, I've been to Rome a few times, and when they take you to Rome, the tour guides will like to take you to the Mamertine prison down in the old ruins, and they'll say that's where Paul is. I'll put a couple question marks by that. There's lots of reasons that probably wasn't the case, and I'll help you with that in just a second. But if you have traveled abroad and you go to Rome, that's where they'll take you and talk about Peter being in prison and Paul being in prison. Probably didn't happen there. But I won't take time to prove that, but I'll give you a resource in a second. And lastly, number 11, Paul is martyred. That's pretty, there's almost absolute certainty with everything we have in early church history that he was beheaded, that he lost his head with the sword of Rome, that Nero, not personally necessarily, but by Nero's instruction, he was beheaded. Now, you remember your dates, I hope, on the Roman fire, and it was blamed on the Christians. Everything ramped up in terms of hostile persecution against the Christians in 64 AD 64. We believe that he was martyred in the wake of all that, and the time frame fits perfectly, and all the early church fathers and the description of Paul's death, and even the early symbolism of the apostle Paul with the sword and being the victim of martyrdom. We don't don't have the scriptural verses for it, but it seems almost certain that this is the time line that we can piece together. Some of the places I put question marks where we're not sure, but that's kind of Paul after the book of Acts. If you want a cool book that's very readable, now you could find all this material. Of course, I got lots of volumes on my bookshelf electronically and physically where you can scour through these books and it's hard to read and it's difficult and a piece here and a bit there and this sermon from this guy and a third century witness there and Eusebius here and Clement here and all that. You can read all those things and it's hard to sort through. But you can get this, you can get there, or you can get this book. And I haven't recommended many books in this series, but this, I, I liked it. It was easy read, very simple. It's called After Acts, Exploring the Lives and Legends of the Apostles by Brian Litfin. Brian Litfin is one of John Goodrich's colleagues at Moody Bible Institute. He's a professor there of theology. And he wrote a very readable, I don't even think it's that long. I, I don't know. It's that thick, maybe 210 pages, 200 pages. And I, even if you just bought the book, you can get it on Kindle right now and download it. At the end of every chapter, he goes through the witnesses. He goes through the extra biblical writings. He helps you understand the New Testament Apocrypha and what that is. But he deals with all those historical features and historical sources in very understandable terms. And then he has chapters on the different apostles and the people and the figures in the book of Acts. And he ends every chapter, I love this, with a report card, he calls it. And he shows some of the biblical history. And in his estimation as a New Testament scholar saying, 
okay, here's what I can rate this as. In other words, was Paul released from his first Roman imprisonment that we end the book of Acts with? And he gives that an A, absolutely. Did he go to Spain? Well, there's enough evidence there. He gives that a B. Did he minister in the Aegean after his release? Well, yeah, he did. That's an absolute. Nicopolis, I mean, there's just too many features. Yes, that's for sure. Was he imprisoned in Mamertine? He gives that a C. Some people give that a D if you're going to rate it on his scale. Was he tried before Nero? Yes, he gives that an A minus. Convicted of treason, beheaded at the Three Fountains. No, he wasn't beheaded at the Three Fountains. He was beheaded, but he wasn't beheaded there. It's another place they'll try to get you to look at that say that that happened there. Buried um, at St. Paul's outside the walls, gives that a B plus. I just like, it's very simple. Even if you just turn to the report cards and you heard, I heard that Peter was, was crucified upside down. You've all heard that. Well, this is a kind of book, easy to read. You can kind of figure out where they get that from. Can you rely on that? Who were these people? Is this a Gnostic writing? Something I can believe or not believe? And it's helpful. After Acts, exploring the lives and legends of the apostles. So after all that, what's the date? We're going to put this at 63 from Macedonia. This is before the Roman fire. This is before Nero's stepped up persecution. He's crazy at this point, obviously, but it's before his uh, second imprisonment, his second Roman imprisonment, not his second imprisonment, he's been imprisoned several times. Recipient, Timothy. We learned about him in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. We met him. He's from a town called Lystra there in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, south-central Turkey. If you want to, I mean, you look it up in your atlas in the back or your maps in the back or your biblical atlas. Uh, He's got a Jewish mother, it says, and a Greek father. Do you remember that story? He ends up actually going and having him circumcised, doing evangelism in the synagogues. So he's got a, a Jewish mom and a Greek father, which is an interesting blended family, they would call it perhaps in the ancient world. His mom, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, uh, are Christians. Matter of fact, if you go to chapter 3, it talks about they taught him the Holy Scriptures, talking about the Old Testament when he was a kid. He knew from childhood the Scriptures that can make you wise into salvation. But the beginning of the book, he drops the name of his mother and grandmother and says they're, they're, they're women of faith. They have faith in Christ. So they're Christians, but they were raising Timothy in the synagogues or at least teaching him the Scripture and giving him... Um, a biblical education, and he becomes a Christian by Paul, I should say. He goes to be with Paul in his second missionary journey, and that's what we read about in Acts chapter 16. He's discipled personally by Paul as he describes that, not only in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2, calling him a child, his true child, spiritual child, but also in 2 Timothy chapter Two, when it talks about him, uh, things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust the faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. Uh, he's personally invested in Timothy. And then he ends up pastoring the church in Ephesus, remember, pastoring the church in Ephesus. And that's where he's writing this letter back to, and Timothy is going to receive it. And he's young. Remember it says in chapter 4, verse 12, don't let anybody look down on your youth, but instead set a model and an example to the believers and all these things. If you look back to the time frame, the, the Jerusalem Council was in Act 15. Act 16, he leaves on his second missionary journey. If the time frame on that is pretty clear, the Jerusalem Council is in 50 AD 50, 51 AD, AD 51, he leaves on this tour. He's immediately introduced as a Lystran at Acts 16 as a kid. I mean, you can tell by the way it's described. He's immediately described as here's his parents, right? His mother and his father. And so he's young. How young is he when he meets him there in, in 51? I don't know, teenager probably. Well, he's calling him young here, and that's 12 years later. So he's probably in his, his mid to late 20s. So when he's called a young pastor, I'm guessing if he were 17 when he picked up the trail of the Apostle Paul and, and went on this journey with him, then he's 28. And I'm just guessing, but that we know he's young. What's considered young as a pastor, certainly in the first century, probably late 20s, just to give you a sense of what that might be, just from adding up the numbers. Right, 16... 
I guess 16 plus 12 is 28, right? Math is not my strong point. That's just addition. You should see me divide. All right. Purpose of the book, to combat bad doctrine. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Listen to that. I'm going to leave you in this town, and here's your job. Start a Bible study and preach good things that everyone likes so they can say at the door, well done, pastor. No, I'm leaving you here so that you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. That's just a, wow, just not how people think today. But that's why he was there, to combat bad doctrine, at least one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons the book was written. To set forth church order, obviously, the part that you might remember most memorably about First Timothy is all this long list of things that people have to be to be leaders in the church. And he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, this helps us think that he's going to go again from Macedonia back to Ephesus. I think he went there twice after his release from prison in Acts 28. But he says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress. I don't know why the ESV translated that way, but whatever. Foundation, the, the ground, the support, the thing that props up the truth. It, it's, it on, it's on which the truth is set. A pillar and buttress. I think the NIV said the, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Buttress is probably not a word used often unless you're an architect, probably. But ESV has little quirks like that. But we'll forgive them because it's a hard job and I wouldn't want to do it. All right. That's to set the church in order. Also to combat sound. Oh, here's the outline. Simplified outline. Combat sound doctrine. That's the first chapter. I'm making this as simple as, simple as I possibly can. Establish church order. Chapters 2 and 3. And the reminder in chapter 4... And it's a scary reminder. You will be opposed. Now, of course, in chapter one, you got to charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. And then in chapter four, it's going to get really tough. It will be hard. And then in chapter five, chapters five and six, a lot of practical church instruction. So there's a simple, 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 simple outline of the six chapters of First Timothy. Combat the bad doctrine. Establish church order. Remember, you're going to be opposed. This is hard work. And get to work instructing people in practical issues in the Christian life. Got that? Not yet? Now you do. Favorite things. Obviously, a favorite thing in this book is the clear standards for church leaders. I mean, if we didn't have the book of First Timothy and Titus, we would not have such clear instructions as to what church leaders should be. I just, I'll give you things that we get in this for pastors and ministry leaders. When we talk about those, that's the simple distinction, by the way, in church leadership. It's not complicated. It's simple. It should have been one of my favorite things, and it's not. I didn't list it. But the simplicity of the church, we've made it very difficult, made it very structured. We have a lot of committees and boards and this and that. But the biblical church was very simple. You had presbyteros, appointment, episkopos. You had pastors, elders, overseers, bishops. That's that's the leading administrators. And then you had the ministry leaders. They're called diakonos, the deacons. And that's what it means to be ministers, ministers that are examples to the flock, like Stephen and people that would be held up with these these kinds of characteristics. So you had, and they were their helpers, their assistants, and then you had administrators. That's the breakdown of the church. There are a few categories here that Paul lays out just to make it as simple as you can possibly make it here. A person that's going to lead in the church needs to be recognized as a godly person. And here's the things that Paul writes out in this book to qualify someone as a godly person. Well, first of all, they should have a clear conscience in their own mind. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. I understand that. We all stumble in many ways. James chapter 3 write these things to you. You won't, you won't sin. We're going to sin. First John chapter one. If you say you're not a sinner, don't sin. You're, you're lying. But in terms of a clear conscience, yes, I am, I'm living up to the light that I have. And above reproach, he uses that phrase. That means it doesn't mean that someone can't say, I saw you do something wrong once. It's that you don't have that charge of here is someone that is not godly. And here's why I know they're not godly. Look at this part of their life. That's, that's the idea of above reproach. 
And I know these are superlatives. Faithful in all things. In all things? Faithful in all things. This is a general statement of the fidelity of a person. They do what is faithful. They're faithful people. They do the things that they should do. They pay their bills. They keep their word. If you do all those things, you should have a good reputation. If you have a clear conscience, above reproach, faithful in all things, you'll be someone that's considered, in the minds of most at least, people with a good reputation. Now, Paul would turn around and say, we're considered the scum of the earth, he tells the Corinthians. We're not talking about the people that are out to get us. We're not talking about the people that hate Christians. We're talking about people that are reasonable, looking at your life, going, yeah, that guy's got a good reputation. Or women. There's females described in this list. Some people say uh, it's the wives of these, but it's not. And I've dealt with that in our ecclesiology series. There's a feminine use of the word deacon, which means ministry leader in the New Testament. Romans chapter 16, verse 1 is a good example. Respectable, dignified. That rounds out the list in 1 Timothy of the things that we see in Scripture regarding what it means to be considered a godly person. You want godly people leading in the church. Well, these are the kinds of things that are itemized in 1 Timothy for ministry leaders and pastors. Lives a disciplined life. Here's, look at these things. They're just trying to categorize these and lay them out in categories. There ought to be a disciplined nature to the life of the leader of a church. And the things that kind of fall under that rubric, that umbrella, sober-minded, self-controlled. They are one woman kind of man, a one wife person. They're not addicted to wine. They're not, they're not enslaved to chemicals. They're not a lover of money. They're not greedy. And they're not violent. These are the kinds of things that show that everyone in any given part of their life are going to have temptations in the complete opposite direction of these things, but they keep these things in control. This is the general statement of truth about leaders. They live a disciplined life. They're godly people. They have disciplined lives. They have restrained mouths. Look at these words. Not double-tongued. They don't say one thing to one person, turn around to another person in a different context, say just the opposite. They don't slander people behind their backs. And they're not quarrelsome. All three of those commands and, and standards and targets for character standards, they're all related to our mouth. Things that we say. Doesn't mean we don't stumble in our tongue. Matter of fact, it says in James 3, if we don't stumble in our speech, we'd be perfect. And no one's perfect as it starts out. Doesn't mean we never fail in these things. It means it's not the standard description of that person. They oversee a godly home. They can't lead in their home. They can't lead in the church. That's very clear. And it's stated that way, not only in First Timothy, but in Titus as well. The way it's put in First Timothy, it manages his household well, manages his home well. Part of that management is they're not just about themselves. They don't just close and circle the wagons in their own biological unit. They're hospitable. They love the outsider. Those are two things that are describing the home of the leader. And I hope that's... By the way, this is not just, I'm glad I'm not a leader because then I'd have to do all that. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, the pastors and the ministry leaders ought to be the example to the entire church. So all of these things are the, are, are the target for all of us. Gene Getz, who we've had speak here before, wrote a classic book, sold a ton of them, and it was very helpful. He just went through all these character traits in Titus and 1 Timothy and said, this should be the measure of how we live. He wrote a book called The Measure of a Man, Measure of a Woman, and Measure of the Church. Those are always a good series of books. And all of those books are all those books, yeah, are giving us that, that target, that character target. And so all of us should strive for this. And this, this is a definition, a descriptive definition of who we're aiming to be. Should be humble. A couple things that relate to that in, in First Timothy. You ought to be tested first. Shouldn't just be saying, yeah, you're, you seem like you'd be a good leader. Great, go lead. They ought to be tested first. They shouldn't be a recent convert. Shouldn't be a brand new Christian, a newbie, a neophyte. They should have some traction, some, some history. And you'd say, well, it said Timothy was young. Yeah, well, Timothy sat under the tutelage of the Apostle Paul for 12 years, at least before he wrote this book. So I'm sure he was doing ministry before those 12 years. But he certainly was tested first, and he wasn't a recent convert. May have been young. May have been in his 20s. He's an effective teacher. Obviously, you want your teachers, your leaders, your pastors to be able to teach. And uh, here's some of the words that he uses, able or apt to teach, able to instruct. It uses the word teach and instruct. And that's just straightforward, and that's how it's said. 
And it's interesting because you think that'd be the number one thing. And it is an essential thing. It's an indispensable thing. But all these other things are much more lengthy in the lists. And this is just one. And it's stated just like that. All right. Call to doctrinal vigilance. Again, I've already told you one of the goals of the book was to make sure that we don't have people in our church teaching wrong doctrine. And I'm going to combine this with another thing, and you'll see this in a second, but we got to start with this. Pastors, leaders, all of us should be vigilant about sound doctrine, doctrinal vigilance. And I like this because the forecast is bleak, but here it is. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, I'm supposed to have a clear conscience. You're supposed to have a clear conscience. There are people that don't have clear consciences, and in their bad conscience, they are the people that are up there now putting things out there they know are not in keeping with God's word. Sometimes they believe it. Most of the times they don't. Nevertheless, they twist and contort the truth for their own advantage. And the Bible says that's going to catch on. And in this end time period between the first coming and the second coming, the church is going to look like this. It's going to get worse. It's going to go from bad to worse. Second Timothy says, and we need to be careful that we guard against it. You got to be vigilant. Now with that said, I want to combine it with number three. That should be done by leaders. And I don't know if winsome is the right word, but certainly not argumentative. Look at how this is put. And it's a lengthy passage, but I wanted to put it all up here. Verse 3, chapter 1. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Okay? And you could engage in that. Which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It's interesting that the false teachers are described as people who are confident, they're bombastic, they want to argue, they're always fighting with people. Now, I'm all for what Paul says to Titus and to Timothy. Instruct these things and don't let anyone disregard you. There should be an authority in the pulpit. But the person that leads and the people that lead in the church should not be argumentative people. Matter of fact, the false teachers are described that way. They're always looking for a fight. The old translation of the word is pugnacious in the old translation. The idea of being a a fighter literally means a striker, one who wants to strike at people. And there are people like that. And they're smart people. And they got podcasts and they write blogs. And and I'm telling you, they just wouldn't make good pastors. And I certainly don't want them pastoring in our church because we don't want that kind of leadership. I want to be vigilant about sound doctrine. I wanted to refute false doctrine, but I don't want to be an argumentative person because that is a description of the other side, not our side. One more passage in that regard. First Timothy chapter three, verses two and three. Just look at the connection here. Able to teach, but not quarrelsome. And then he goes on a long list, lover of money, and it had things in front of it. But that juxtaposition, able to teach, but you're not a quarrelsome person. We shouldn't be argumentative. Of course, I love God's use of the young. I think it's great. I think we should invest in young people. I think we ought to be testing people in ministry young. We ought to be not afraid. I've had people leave the church because we are we got too many young people leading in the church. That's a dumb reason to leave the church. I mean, if you can point out how, how they're messing up, great. Maybe we need to bench some people. That's good. Tell us. We'll do that. But as Paul says here, your age, and we're not talking about a 10-year-old. We're talking, though, in this case, about probably someone in his 20s. He's told to command and teach these things and let no one despise you for your youth. I know they're going to say you're young, but set the believers an example in the speech that you you use, the conduct that you use in love and faith, purity, until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. So this is the guy that's unfurling the scroll and reading from the scriptures, taking the papyrus that are sent from the apostle Paul and reading them. They're leaders in the church and exhortation. They're going to exhort people. They're going to teach people. And the point here is that God says through the apostle Paul, 
this is done in situations sometimes where young people are utilized. And that's great. It's a great thing. And I think we're careful around here, and you should be too, about not a recent convert or whatever. But, man, I'm all for encouraging young preachers and young people to follow the giftedness of their heart to lead. So that's a good thing. And I love that about the book of First Timothy. I also like, because we happen to be ministering in a fairly wealthy place, that we see instructions that are very clear to the rich. And I got I mean, I know we always can find people that are richer than we are. I get that. And even the rich, rich, rich can find people that are richer than they are. But the instructions for the rich are helpful for us because we've got to admit we certainly have more than most have had throughout all of history. And we should imagine, we should not be imagining as the false teachers do that godliness is a means of gain. And that's a big mistake. And I hate that. And we're not at all trying to manipulate God to get more stuff. That's the prosperity gospel. And that's not true. But we should see that godliness with contentment, which is what it's all about. We want to be content with whatever God gives us. Like Paul said to the Philippians, if if I didn't get this gift, I would be fine. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whether with a lot or a little. I know the secret of contentment. That's great. But I realize this, that godliness with contentment is the goal for the rich. That's the context here. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. We're leaving everything behind here materially. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, here's the problem. Particularly in a wealthy society, more and more people want to have more and more stuff. That's a temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. You didn't need to walk down that path and tempt yourself into those things. And that kind of compromise, you could have been fine with less. They plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. And here's the famous passage. It's not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving, and that's what a lot of people have, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. I remember a kid once in my Sunday school class. We were kids. We were growing up. We went to this guy's house. It was really nice. And the guy said to me, I'll never forget it. We were just kids. He said, I want to grow up and be really rich. And I knew enough as a kid growing up in a Christian home. That's a really dumb thing to say. Why would you do that? And I remember he said to me, because, well, you know, if I were rich, then I could give a lot of money away to other people. That's a guy who set out from a very young age to set his sights on material wealth, pleasure, convenience, comfort, all the rest. And guess what happened to him? What happens to everyone who makes this their goal? That, unfortunately, is a recipe for disaster. God wants us to be content. God can give you stuff. That's great. He can supply you richly with a lot of stuff. And he goes on to say it later in the same passage, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich, here's your command. In this present age, if you're rich, which is a great way to put it, because it doesn't mean you're rich in the next age. It means you're rich in this age. And if you are, charge them, he says. Just like he said early on, charge people to not teach wrong doctrines. Charge the rich people. Not to be haughty, not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It can go away. But set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's a double-edged sword there, right? I don't seek it. I don't crave it. I don't want it. When I get it, I can enjoy it. And that's fine. But then here's the instruction. Do good and be rich in good works. That's the goal for rich people. Be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share the stuff that God has enriched you with. Thus you'll store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Look at the first verse in 17 there. Rich in the present age doesn't mean you're rich in the next. But you'd like to be rich in the next. And one way you can do that, focus on what is good. Set your hope on God. Be ready to share. Be generous. And guess what? You will be rich in the next life in the kingdom so that you can take hold of that which is truly life because this life is not truly life these cars aren't truly transportation your clothes are not truly the best stuff the next life is where you get the reality of all those things (laughs) titus is right there yeah i was so certain we were going to get to to this and it's six after this would be the first week i probably let you out on time all right okay i'm saying it's like it's your fault it's not your fault though i know there were no questions no interruptions Let's pray. I'm going to let you out on time. God. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for these three great books that we looked at. God, help us to have the adequate time to deal with all these books as we continue on. Thank you so much for even just these last statements from the last chapter of First Timothy. What a great reminder for us as we have more than we need. Let us be generous. Let us set our hearts on good works. Let us be ready to share. Let us set our hope on you, God, and let us be the kinds of people as even we described, people that are willing to not only receive kindness graciously, but to give and to be generous, to be kind to one another, to reach out and give ourselves, as Paul said, to spend and be expended for the souls of other people. And let our church be known for that as we continue to serve you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.